morning. Uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And uh, we're going to continue on. Actually, this is the concluding part of this little mini-series we're doing on following the Master's ministry. And uh, I'm going to finish up what we started last time on uh, this idea of Christ and His compassion. Now, last time we were together... I told you the true story, if you remember, about a parakeet by the name of Chippy, right? How many of you had a week like Chippy this past week? Anyone? He had quite a stressful day. But in keeping with the pet story motif, okay, today I want to share another one of my favorite pet stories with you. This is also a real life experience. And this one has to do with a basset hound. Picture in your mind, a basset hound by the name of Tattoo. Some time ago, a newspaper in Tacoma, Washington, carried the story of Tattoo the basset hound. Tattoo didn't intend to go for an evening run. But when his owner shut his leash in the car door and took off for a drive, Tattoo had no choice. A motorcycle officer by the name of Terry Filbert noticed a passing vehicle was something that appeared to be dragging behind it. And as he passed the vehicle, he saw Tattoo. Officer Filbert finally chased the car to a stop, and Tattoo was rescued, but not before the dog reached a speed of about 20 to 30 miles per hour and rolled over several times. Tattoo has not asked to go out for an evening walk for a long, long time. He was fine, but he wasn't ready to go out for a walk very soon after that. Now, what I want to say to you this morning is that there is too much tattoo activity going on in most of our lives, even in the midst of COVID. I think there's too much tattoo activity going on in most of our lives. If, uh, if, you've, ever, if you've been to Augusta in the last few weeks, I don't know if you've noticed the traffic, I think it's more congested now than it ever was before COVID. Even in the midst of the current crisis, somehow, some way, many people feel that they've been collared, leashed, and involuntarily yanked along at a breakneck speed, trying to keep up an impossible pace, intermittently rocking and rolling our way through daily life with no relief in view. Unless someone stops this runaway bus, A frazzled, worn-out, and road-burned future is inevitable. Carl Jung once wrote, he said these words, not that I'm a big Carl Jung fan, but when truth is spoken, I like to reiterate it. He said, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. Someone else said that hurry is not just a disordered schedule, hurry is a disordered heart. As we pursue this spiritual life that Christ desires for us and attempt to undertake the ministry that he modeled for us as we've been studying, we must do ruthless battle with what has come to be known um, as hurry sickness. Meyer Friedman defined hurry sickness this way. He said, quote, Above all, a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time, frequently in the face of opposition, real or imagined, from other persons, unquote. That's his definition of hurry sickness. Now, the great danger is not that it will cause us to renounce our faith. 
It is that we will become so distracted and so rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of our faith. Is that really what Jesus wants for you and me? Friends, there's the deal. Following Jesus cannot be done at a sprint. You can't follow Jesus at a sprint. If we want to follow someone, we can't go faster than the one who is leading and Jesus is not sprinting. Again, the premise that we've been working on in this series is that undertaking the ministry in the church means understanding the ministry of Christ. And then the text we're currently looking at is Mark chapter 6, and specifically the verses 30 through 34, which occurs in the midst of the second, as I said, most stressful day in the life of Jesus our Lord next to his crucifixion. How did he handle it? Let's look at it again. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. But there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves, and the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, shore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So that's the text we've been looking at. So what was it that motivated Christ to minister in the midst of this chaotic schedule that had happened that day when he encountered the slithering, strangling fingers of stress closing in around him? Well, the last time we began to uncover the fact that when we're riding that roller coaster ride of emotional strain and personal storms and physical stress and the spiritual needs of people wage an assault on our sanity, our ministry to others must be motivated by one thing. Remember what that was? It was the same thing that motivated Jesus. What was that? Compassion. The Father's heart beating in our heart. That's what we said. And God the Father's heart beats with compassion. Amen? So the motivation for ministry then is compassion. The ministry of the church should be motivated by the same compassion that Christ had. And there are at least four elements I I spoke to you about said that about a ministry that's motivated by compassion that we can identify in these five verses of Mark chapter 6, which should serve as sort of a pattern for us, both corporately as a church and for each of us individually as we interact with people. And the last time we were together, I unveiled two of those things, and we're going to finish them up today. Let me review the first two. Number one, true compassion makes itself available. Makes itself Available. That's verses 30 through 34. I won't need to read them again to you, um, the first part of verse 34. But when Jesus went ashore, basically, he saw all this large crowd, and we spoke about the fact that it was probably upwards of 25,000 people. When he was ready to go for a secluded, to a secluded place for a rest with his disciples, a much-needed rest, And yet he saw all these people, and what did he do? He had compassion on them. Jesus' life shows us that sometimes, as I pointed out last week, that ministry is more important than our food. Sometimes it's more important than our sleep. Sometimes it's more important than our rest. You just got to know when, right? 
So here's the statement. Keeping, in, in, keeping your life in balance means keeping in step with the Spirit. Okay? You got to be able to tune into what God wants and know what He's telling you to do, whether it's rest or not rest. Jesus went to Galilee because He knew He needed to rest. He needed to pray. He needed to talk with his disciples and prepare them for the coming year because in a year's time, Jesus would be crucified. But again, they were quickly interrupted by the demands of the crowds and Jesus stepped out of the boat and he walked into Bedlam and Jesus had every right in the world to be irritated, to be annoyed. He could have told the crowd to go home. This isn't the right time, but he didn't do that. Instead, he felt compassion for them. Their needs meant more to him than his convenience and comfort at that point. One of the most serious signs of hurry sickness is a diminished sense of compassion. You know you've got trouble in your spiritual life when your capacity to love people is severely lowered and strained. And my friends, I'm seeing it all over the place today. Let me illustrate this by telling you one of my favorite airline stories. Okay? An elderly couple were flying first class. Elderly couple. Sitting behind a businessman who was enormously frustrated with them. They had been just ahead of him in line at the gate and again boarding the plane and they moved really, really slowly. But this guy was in a really big hurry. I don't know how he thought he was going to hurry the plane along. He was getting on a plane, right? But when the meal was served, they delayed the businessman again by having to get some pills from the overhead storage compartment, inadvertently dropping a battered duffel bag on this businessman. Oh, what's the matter with you people? He exploded loudly enough for the whole cabin to hear. I'm amazed you ever get anywhere. Why can't you just stay home? Ever meet up with people like that? Now, to register his anger, the man sat down and reclined his seat back as hard as he could. Which, of course, it was so hard that the elderly husband's trayful of food spilled all over him and his wife. The flight attendant apologized to the couple profusely. Is there anything that we can do, she asked. The husband explained it was their 50th wedding anniversary and they were flying for the very first time. She said, let me at least bring you a bottle of wine. And she did so. And when it was uncorked, the old husband stood up, proposed a toast and proceeded to pour the bottle over the head of the impatient businessman sitting in front of them. And the story goes, everybody in the cabin exploded with applause. Now, last time we were together, I made the statement that when schedules constrain us, compassion cannot move us. It's true, isn't it? Hurried people cannot love. They don't have the time for it. They don't have the capacity for it because hurried people cannot love. As one writer put it, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible because love takes time. Love takes time and time is the one thing that hurried people don't have. 
How do you feel when someone interrupts your already busy day? Do you see people as potential opportunities for showing Christ's love or as intrusions into your personal world? The perspective you have will kind of pinpoint your true attitude toward the ministry. True compassion makes itself available. Second thing we saw last time was true compassion is expressed in our attitude. That's the second part of verse 34. He felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. There are five simple words in this text that perfectly describe Jesus' attitude. He felt compassion for them. In other words, his heart broke for them. And in our harried and hurried days, that doesn't usually come naturally to most people. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves or put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. The New American Standard says, Put on a heart of compassion. In other words, it's not just something that takes place automatically. It's not something that just happens. It's something that we need to actively and intentionally pursue and ask God to help us out with. So the last time I encouraged you to do what I try to do is to begin every day by praying, Lord, let my heart be broken by the same things that break your heart. Hopefully some of you have adopted that strategy. This is the first character trait of a Christian or a church with a true attitude of compassion. It has a heart that hurts. It has a heart that hurts for people. Now, do others see that in you and in me? Because sometimes we're so careful with our emotions because we're so concerned about our doctrine. Francis Schaeffer once said, now watch this, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. It is, isn't it? Jesus never doused the fire of his passion. He wasn't calculating or analytical when it came to people's needs. He was moved by their needs, even when they didn't deserve it. Let me say that again. He was moved by their needs even when they didn't deserve it. He didn't withhold his love from non-believers and only gave it to Christians, did he? Good thing, too, because none of us were Christians before Christ died, were we? Do we draw distinctions on who we're going to be compassionate on or with or show compassion to? The people in our text here, for the most part, were thrill seekers. If you compare the other passages of Scripture that deal with this context, they really weren't all that interested in Jesus. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to see miracles. They wanted Jesus to proclaim himself as king. Most of them probably followed Jesus for what Chris was talking about. Their their own selfish needs. You can look at it in John chapter 6. The seat toward the end after Jesus fed the 5,000 and what the people wanted to do and what Jesus said pointed out to them in verse 26 and following. You don't seek me because of me. 
You seek me because I'm going to fill your bellies. Even Jesus said that. See, they wanted a worker of miracles, not a savior who would deliver them from sin. And Jesus knew that before he healed them, yet he still healed them, didn't he? He still fed them, didn't he? He still had a place in his heart for them, didn't he? Jesus didn't withhold his love because they were uncaring. To their apathy, he responded in sympathy. Why? Mark says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were aimless. Jesus saw right through to their deeper, deeper needs and deeper issues. They were hungry for truth and they were thirsting for grace, something that their leaders in that day were not giving them. In another context, Matthew describes the crowds as being distressed and dispirited. The ESV uses the terms harassed and helpless. You can see that in Matthew, actually. Let me see if I can find it for you. It's going to be on the screen, I believe. Matthew chapter 9, in verse, beginning in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Oh, yep. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The literal meaning of distressed is to flay, okay? Or to skin. It gives you a picture of what, what that term really means, doesn't it? Like being skinned alive. These people were like, they had been taken apart by whatever, by the false teaching, by the lack of love from their leaders, by just the world and the things that were going around the culture at the time. The words dispirited, also in some versions say downcast, refers to being laid prostrate from mortal wounds. This is the crowd that Jesus saw. He saw right through what they were clamoring for and understood them to be distressed and downcast. If you remember when we started this series, that's exactly what Jesus said he came for, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And to bring relief to the downcast and the prisoners, set the prisoners free and all of that. That's in Luke chapter 4. Jesus saw these people as being skinned alive and stomped on by the religious community. Mistreated, mishandled by their pastors and leaders. Left hopeless and helpless in the streets. It still happens today. It still happens. Religion for profit is big, big business, isn't it? Huge ministries regularly built people out of astronomical amounts of money for their own gain, giving the sick false hope and doctrinally leading multitudes of unsuspecting followers to spiritual slaughter while propagating a false gospel. And let me tell you, this COVID thing has just opened up the floodgates wide open for people to do that and to prey on people's needs. Shepherds who don't give a rip 
about sheep. God had much to say about shepherds of that character in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 34, some pretty harsh words. Beginning in verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. And those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. Those are heavy duty words, aren't they? Jeremiah 23 and verses 1 and 2 Not much different. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. You see, when I read passages like that, it makes me feel like, uh uh-oh, I'm in the wrong business here because this is serious stuff and I don't know if I'm measuring up. And every single pastor and leader and teacher and parent and small group leader or disciple maker, anybody that has anyone following them ought to take seriously God's convicting question in Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 20, which says this, where is the flock that was given you your beautiful sheep? You see, Christ looked at these people as sheep without a shepherd, skinned alive, stomped on by their religious community, their religious leaders, and he had a heart that broke for them, and he cared for them, and it showed on his face and in his actions. And if you and I have compassion, if we have a heart that beats in sync with God's heart, it's going to show. And that's the next characteristic of church of a church with a characteristic, with a compassionate attitude that Christ has. It not only has a heart that hurts, but it is a community that cares. It's a community that cares. Jesus not only had compassion on the crowds, but Luke writes in his account of this same day that he continually welcomed them, the people. Luke chapter 9, verse 11. He received them with open arms, Even in the midst of his own emotional pressures, he turned contact points into caring points. And the big question is, are we ready to do that as a church or as individuals? People will know as soon as they encounter us whether or not we care about them. The church of Jesus Christ is not only about teaching. It's not only about worshiping together. It's not exclusively about evangelizing. It's also about caring. It's all of all those things. Because if we don't compassionately care about people, the motivation for everything else the church does is flawed. Because true compassion makes itself available. It is expressed in our attitude. And then thirdly, True compassion is exhibited through action. Again, verse 34, Mark chapter 6. 
He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. See, Jesus' compassion was very concrete. He didn't just talk about ministry, he did ministry. Compassion demands that we put our money where our mouth is. In 1975, a child by the name of Raymond Dunn Jr. was born in New York State. The Associated Press reports that at his birth, a skull fracture and oxygen deprivation caused severe retardation in this baby. And as Raymond grew, the family discovered further impairments. His twisted body suffered up to 20 seizures per day. He was blind, mute, immobile. He had severe allergies that limited him to only one food, a meat-based formula made by Gerber Foods. You know Gerber Foods? But in 1985... Gerber stopped making the precise formula that Raymond lived on. Carol Dunn scoured the country to buy what stores had in stock of this food, accumulating cases and cases, but in 1995 years later, her stock ran out. And in desperation, she appealed to Gerber for help. And without this particular food, Raymond would starve to death. He wouldn't live. Well, the employees of that company listened. And in an unprecedented action, volunteers donated, donated, mind you, hundreds of hours to bring out their old equipment, set up production lines, obtain special approval from the USDA, and produce the very formula, all for that one special boy. In January 1995, Raymond Dunn Jr., known as the Gerber Boy, died from his physical problems. But during his brief lifetime, he called forth a wonderful thing from people. Compassion. Compassion. It's it's a picture of of what we're reading about here, about Jesus' compassion. Jesus' compassion was such that he'd pull out all the stops for one person. Isn't that exactly what he said in Luke chapter 15 and verse 4? Luke 15, verse 4, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which he lost until he finds it? Don't you think Jesus would have still gone to the cross even if the thief that was crucified next to him was the only person who would ever place their faith in him? Do you think he would have done that? Or if you were, do you think he would have done that? John 3.16 indicates that although God loved the world... People are saved individually, right? Think about John 3.16 and the way the words read. It's such a familiar verse that we don't even see it. God so loved the world, that's everybody, right? That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever, that means whoever, 
One person. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In Luke chapter 15, again, in verses 7 and verse 10, Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous peoples who need no repentance. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When compassion is real, action is tangible. Jesus went beyond just feeling compassion. He acted on it. How? Because he gave people his time. Wherever Jesus went, regardless of what he was doing, he took time for people. The woman at the well, the woman who was suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, man born blind, the 10 lepers, the royal official whose son was dying, Nicodemus, Jesus dealt with people. He took time for them. Why? Because he loved them. He loved them. And as I said earlier, hurried and harried people cannot love well because love takes time. Now, let's not get crazy about this. We're human beings, right? We're only individual people. There's only 24 hours in a day. One person cannot take time for every single person that ever comes to them, you know, to that extent. But we're not talking about what we're limited by. We're talking about the attitude of the heart, aren't we? But Jesus felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he put his own needs aside in order to deal with them. He gave people his time. You know, Lewis Grant suggests we're afflicted with what he calls sunset fatigue. Ever hear of sunset fatigue? If you're a parent, you probably have practiced this before. When we come home at the end of the day's work, those who need our love the most, those to whom we're most committed and end up getting the leftovers, they get the leftovers, right? Sunset fatigue is when we're just too tired or too drained or too preoccupied to love the people to whom we have made the deepest promises. Sunset fatigue is reality. But you know it's set in, Grant says, when you find yourself rushing even when there's no reason to. You ever do that? Or that there is an underlying tension that causes sharp words or sibling quarrels. Here's the one that really got me, not now, but when my kids were little, I used to do this, and I challenge each of you that have little kids, I know you've done this. You set up mock races, right? Okay, kids, let's see who can take a bath the fastest. Anybody ever done that before? But those mock races are not really about doing stuff with your kids. It's about really about you getting through the chore, right? As fast as you can get through it. That's sunset fatigue. Sunset fatigue is when you sense a loss of gratitude and a loss of wonder in your world. You indulge in self-destructive escapes from fatigue, like abusing alcohol, or watching too much TV, or listening to country and western music. No, that's, Grant didn't say that. That was just thrown in there from somebody else's idea. No commentaries on that. John Orberg once wrote that it's because it kills love that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. 
Hurry prevents us from receiving love from the Father or giving love to his children. That's why Jesus never hurried. Challenge you, look in the scriptures, look at the gospels. Did Jesus ever hurry anywhere? He was busy. This day is proof of it. But did Jesus ever hurry? If we're to follow Jesus... Someone once said, we must ruthlessly, must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Because Jesus isn't hurrying. And if we are, we're getting ahead of him. As the greater context of Mark 6 indicates, Jesus was certainly busy, as I just said, in terms of having many things in which he was actively engaged in. But he was never in a hurry or frenetic in his activity. As the author of time itself, Jesus understood impeccably the sanctity of time. The sanctity of time. According to author Mark Buchanan, the ancient Greeks had this concept embedded in their language. Embedded in their language expressed in two distinct words for time. Two different words. is an intuition about the possibility of sanctified time. Time, they knew, had two faces, two different natures. It exists as, exists as two separate realms, really as two disparate dimensions. And we orient ourselves primarily to one or the other. One is sacred time, one is profane. The first word that they used for time is the word chronos. Familiar to us because it's the root of many of our own English words, chronology, chronicle, chronic, chronograph. It's the time of clock and calendar. Time is a gauntlet. Time is a forced march, he says. The word derives from one of the gods in the Greek pantheon. Kronos was a nasty minor deity, a glutton and a cannibal who gorged himself on his own children. He was always consuming and never consummated. That gives you a picture of Kronos time. Kronos is the presiding deity of the driven. The second Greek word is the word kairos. This is time as a gift as an opportunity, as a season. It's time pregnant with a purpose. In Cairo's time, you ask not what time is it, but you ask the question, what is this time for? Kairos is the servant of holy purpose. There is a time for everything. I just did this yesterday when I, did, I performed a, fir, a funeral yesterday. And I quoted this verse in Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything, Ecclesiastes says, and a season for every activity under heaven. This year, this day, this hour, this moment, each is ripe for something that God wants us to do. We play, we can work, we can sleep, we can love, we can worship, we can listen. Each moment enfolds transcendence and lays hold of a significance beyond itself. That's Kairos time. 
Again, Ecclesiastes 3 and verses 10 and 11 sums it up like this. I have seen the task that God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. And he has made everything beautiful in its time. That's Kairos time. Kronos betrays us, the author says. Always it devours the beauty that it creates. But sometimes Kronos betrays itself. It stirs in us a longing for something else, something that the beauty of things in time evokes but cannot satisfy. Either we end up as the man in Ecclesiastes did, driven, 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 and never finding any satisfaction, racing hard against Kronos, desperate to seize beauty, but always grasping smoke and ashes and thorns, seeking purpose and finding none, only emptiness, or we learn to follow the scent of eternity in our hearts and we begin to orient ourselves toward Kairos time, we start to sanctify some of our time. So, as the author concludes, maybe it's time to change. Maybe that's what this whole COVID thing is really bringing out. Maybe it's time to change, to stop feeding Kronos, his own children, and start sanctifying time. Jesus took time to walk with people and to talk with people. Luke 9.11 says that after welcoming the people, he spoke with them about the kingdom. Above everything else that he, that he wanted to speak to them about their real needs, salvation. He not only met their physical needs because he had compassion on them, but he oriented them toward their spiritual needs. And that's why it's important to understand you can't just go out and do social service without preaching the gospel because that won't save people. The gospel will save people. And so Jesus taught people the truth. He taught them the truth. Not only did he teach them about the kingdom, but Mark writes he began to teach them many things. Right there in verse 34. The Gospels present Jesus' ministry as one of constant teaching. Constant teaching. I don't have time to do this with you. I could put it up on the screen. But you have you ever sat down and actually thought about making a list of all the different things that Jesus taught in the records that we have from the gospel for the three and a half years of ministry that we have record of? I mean, what did Jesus teach? He taught about regeneration, worship, salvation, forgiveness of sin, evangelism, judgment, heaven and hell, rejection, fasting, praying, giving, marriage and divorce, hate and anger, lying, loving, retaliation, adultery, loving God, loving friends, loving enemies, and family, money, possessions, false doctrine, false teachers, the Sabbath, obedience, discipleship, blasphemy, blah, on and on and on it goes. Jesus taught them many, many, many things. And the list is endless. He taught not only with his words, but also with his life. He taught in public, he taught in private. In the city, in the country, in the desert, in the marketplace, in the house of God, and in the homes of sinners. Wherever he went, he taught the truth. He knew what his purpose was. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 38... 
just a couple of chapters back, Mark records, he said to them, Jesus, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 42, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him and he came to him, they came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. See, in that particular case, the crowds were there. He, he, he told them that he, had to, he couldn't just stay with them, that he had to go and teach. Remember the program for ministry, what we started this series out with in Luke chapter 4? Two-thirds of the program, Jesus' program for ministry, was proclamation. So don't let anyone tell you that the church's ministry should not center on teaching. Jesus centered his ministry on teaching. He taught people everything they needed to know. He gave them his time, he taught them the truth, and he healed their hurts. Jesus blended all of these parts of ministry into a beautiful place, a beautiful balance. Whenever he healed, he taught them. Not always in words, but in action. And whenever he taught people, his words actually brought spiritual healing. He healed and taught, he taught and healed. And by the way, the word for healing is where we get our English word therapy. Jesus' ministry was therapeutic. It ministered to the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Friends, when we give people our time and teach them the truth, we will inevitably heal their hurts. We will. Jesus set out for a deserted place to rest. He was tired. He was grief-stricken, in need of solitude. And when he arrived, he got hit with this parade of people that we often view as problems, but he saw them as precious. He didn't dismiss them right away. First, he gave them his time. Then he taught them the truth. Then he healed their hurts. And you know what intrigues me about all of that? Is that they didn't deserve it. As I said before, and that's the hardest thing about ministry motivated by compassion is that it will be abused. True compassion can expect to be abused. Now, we don't read about a single person in this crowd, not even the disciples, who cared about Jesus' needs. Right? No one offered Jesus comfort in his grief. No one encouraged Jesus to rest. They were takers. They were not givers. They abused his compassion, but he ministered to them anyway. And don't think that it was any easier for him because he was the son of God. That made it all the more difficult in my view. Why, you might say? Well, one writer draws this fitting conclusion. He says, consider... Consider that along with holy strength, he also had a holy awareness. There were no secrets to Jesus. On that day especially. Jesus knew the hearts of each person. He knew why they were there and what they would do after he released them. And so he could not only see their past, 
and what issues they struggled with. But he also could see their future and what issues they would pursue. And undoubtedly, there were those in that multitude who would use their newfound health to hurt other people. Did you ever think about that? And Jesus released tongues that would someday curse him. And he gave sight to eyes that would lust and sin. And he healed hands that would kill. And many of those he healed would never say thank you to him, but he healed them anyway. And most would be more concerned with being healthy than being holy, but he healed them anyway. And some of those who asked for bread today would cry for his blood a few months later, but he healed them anyway. And Jesus chose to do what you and I seldom if ever choose to do. He chose to give gifts to people knowing full well that those gifts will be used or could be used for evil. So don't be too quick to attribute Jesus' compassion to his divinity. Because remember both sides. For each time Jesus healed, he had to overlook a future and a past. Something, by the way, he still does today. Jesus' ministry was motivated by true compassion, the heart of his Father. It wasn't conditioned by the nature of the crowd, but by the will of God. Your compassion, my compassion, the compassion of the church at large will be abused. You can count on it. Showing it should be determined solely by the love of God within us. Christ's kind of compassion is not motivated by the conditions because Christ-like love is unconditional. Jesus' ministry was motivated by compassion. It was readily available. It shaped his attitude. It always accomplished what he intended and it was frequently abused. Actually, it was abused to death. It still is. And my friends, like it or not, that is what we are called to as his church. So we can take it or leave it. The choice is yours and mine. Let me conclude with this. The paradoxical commandments, I don't know if you've heard of them. The paradoxical commandments were written by Kent M. Keith when he was 19 years old a sophomore in Harvard College in 1968 as part of a booklet for student leaders entitled The Silent Revolution, Dynamic Leadership in the Student Council. When I start to read these, you're going to recognize them as being somewhere, coming from somewhere else. But this is, this is the truth. Because Mother Teresa thought that they were important enough when she found them to put up on the wall of her children's home in Calcutta. In this day of unrest and unruliness, the time we're living in right now, I think they are an important reminder of how we're supposed to be. Practical teaching for godly living in contemporary society. That's what this is. You probably know it as a poem by the name Anyway. 
People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you will win false friends and true enemies succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but they may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. And here's an 11th one. Here's an 11th paradoxical commandment that I want to leave you with. Especially right now in the world. The world is full of violence and injustice and starvation and disease and environmental destruction. Have faith in Jesus anyway. Let's pray. Lord, there's been a lot that was spoken about today. And it all started off with some singing to you in spirit and truth and worship. And then focusing our attention on the fact that you lived your life in just the way that we've been talking about by giving yourself selflessly and sacrificially on the cross. And we reminded ourselves of that, Lord, through this communion table and how we are called to do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but not only them, but also for the world around us that don't know you. And now as we close, Lord God, help the words that we have trafficked among today, especially the word of truth in, your, in this Bible, have an impact on our lives. Help us make the decisions that we need to make so that we might order our steps after you, our teacher, our rabbi, our Lord, and our Savior. For it's in your precious name that I ask these things. Amen.